Hey, this is Q Tran, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, welcome to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. I'm your host, Ilya Friedman. If you've ever wondered what the Cinepod would be like without my co-host, Ben Rock, wonder no longer. Uh, I'm doing double duty this week as my co-host, Ben Rock, is off. He's tested positive for COVID. Um, He told me I could tell all of you this. He considers you his family. But uh, by all accounts, his case so far has been mild and he is recovering. So uh, that's all good news. And it sounds like he'll be back in the swing of things before long. So you won't have to put up with just me. Uh, on the show today, uh, returning for her second time, is Q Yen Tran. Uh, she's the talented DP who shot Palm Springs, uh, a movie starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Melody. It was a breakout hit at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival and is now available on Hulu. Uh, definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. Uh, there's no accident that we're uh, dropping this episode right now because it's nearly Groundhog Day. If you are a fan of the movie Groundhog Day, you might also enjoy Palm Springs, uh, which is just a different take on the same repeating day construct that's been used by many other movies, uh, and of course popularized by the 1993 Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day. So in an effort to keep up with all the usual duties of the show, uh, we're going to have a close focus this week. Uh, Right now, I'm about to jump into it. Uh, And it's really much more interesting than you might think when I tell you the topic, uh, which is nothing more really than a simple piece of paper uh, or papers with a bunch of legal ease written all over it called an NDA, uh, otherwise known as a non-disclosure agreement. Why are we going to talk about non-disclosure agreements in close focus? Well, maybe it's because it's something uh, personal for me, but also uh, there's quite a bit of that in the news right now. For example, in my regular course of business at Hot Rod Cameras, I may be under, or my team may be under, uh, anywhere between like four and maybe 15 different non-disclosure agreements uh, that are in effect at any given time. So we always have to be very cautious about the information that we disclose, as usually uh, all that information that uh, we're privy to involves some sort of new camera equipment or lenses or something that's yet to come out because people want to get feedback and stuff from us or they want us to consult or they all kinds of different things. But usually that's what it's about. Uh, some people, particularly celebrities, are known for incredible NDAs. For example, Tom Cruise was rumored to have one that was the size of a phone book, and Kanye West has one, and that's that's really kind of the kickoff of what I'm going to talk about here today for non-disclosures, is that uh, Kanye West has all of his summer interns at his clothing company sign an NDA saying that they will be liable for a half-million-dollar settlement if they violate the terms of the NDA. And of course, there's all the list of things that you cannot do if you're a a summer intern for Kanye West, which I'm guessing means either you're not getting paid or getting paid very little. And if you reveal something you're not supposed to, they can come after you for, he can come after you for a half million dollars. And that's happened. So one of his interns has posted photos on Instagram and Kanye West did not like this. And uh, so he's coming after him and he's suing him for that half million dollar. And the thing is, is that if a judge finds that that that's true, that the intern did it, the intern's going to be on the hook. And that's really going to be brutal for someone who probably doesn't have an extra half million lying around. Anyway, you know, there's other sorts of rumors and NDA stuff that I believe all the time people hear stories and they know that they can't exactly get the full story. And it can be really frustrating because there are people who are involved in a project who maybe are off the record, but claiming something to be true. But the official company behind it claims it to be false. Like there's another example right now. Uh, HBO Max, according to Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, is actively in development on a Harry Potter series, something for HBO and and undoubtedly will be wildly popular because it's one of the largest movie franchises and book franchises of all time. And officially, HBO 
uh, Warner Brothers are all saying that there is nothing active in the Harry Potter universe going on right now. And they're they're absolutely denying all all rumors. And I'm sure that the people who know about it, who have leaked this information to the trades or maybe uh, unintentionally have, have leaked it, they're not going on the record. No one's saying who they are because undoubtedly there are massive, massive NDAs and potentially uh, billions of dollars at stake. So when you hear about some of these stories and you don't get the official word, just know that it could be something like the Kanye West or it could be something like, like Tom Cruise. There are certain uh, powers that be that make it impossible to really get the full story story, but I do know that with both Variety and Hollywood Reporter reporting it and saying that their sources are are, are gold, which they usually are, um, there's a really good chance that rumors might be true this time. There's a whole lot of camera rumors that sort of exist out there on the internet too, and I'm going to caution you about those because I find that almost all of those are false. So take it from someone who actually knows some of this stuff, uh, almost all the camera rumors that you ever read online are completely, completely false. But uh, in the case of the HBO Harry Potter series, uh, may, that may be, may be real. So, uh, so anyway, I think that the Harry Potter NDA is probably airtight and that there is no Alohomora or however you say it, that will unlock that one. So um, yeah, definitely that's one you're not going to want to mess with. So uh, let's get to the interview with Q Yen Tran. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. Well, I am here virtually with uh, Q Yen Tran, who had she's done the show before. So we'll have a link in the show notes to the previous interview, so you can hear all about kind of how she got started. But I'm actually excited to, to talk to you. You have, uh, in as much as anyone can have a hit movie right now during COVID when people can't go to the theaters, you had kind of the water cooler movie that you shot, uh, Palm Springs, which is a, a phenomenal comedy, uh, kind of a, one of those time loop stories like. Groundhog Day or Happy Death Day, but it's 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 high on the comedy, and uh, I think it's really cool to check in with you now because your career I feel like is on a serious upswing right now, and you're you know like when we talked to you, I think you had just done camping, and I feel like you're doing you know much higher higher profile stuff, so I think this is a really interesting time to kind of check in with you and kind of kind of take the temperature of uh, of what's going on. Also, Alana, who is on the interview as well, wanted to talk to you about kind of your your sideline business that you've been doing. Do you want to go ahead and ask about that before we uh, get into uh, Palm Springs? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I know during the pandemic, you and um, your friend Jeannie had started Doe Rectors of Photography. If you wanted to talk about that just a little bit. Yeah. So I have um, a really good friend of mine who's also a cinematographer and a woman. Her name, Jeanne Tyson. She and I have been friends for over a decade. I started as her mentor and we've always had baking in common Mm -hmm. from way back in the day. And over the pandemic, we started baking sourdough like everybody else <laughs> um, during this time. But we decided, you know, let's let's do something with that because it feels a little bit selfish to just bake sourdough when so many people are hungry. And so it started off as, okay, let's try this little fundraiser, bake sale. We'll try to raise like a couple hundred bucks for the LA Food Bank. And it just kind of escalated from there. And to date, we've raised enough money for over 140,000 meals. Oh my for God. For the LA Food Bank. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. we're really proud of, of that. And we're so warmed by all the generosity because, you know, it's really hard right now. So many people aren't working and for everyone to just contribute $1, it just means so much. So we're, real, we're really overwhelmed with the response and so proud of this fundraiser that the little bake sale that could. Yeah. And as a patron of one of, of your uh, goods, and I have to say the cookies and the bread is are amazing. So <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a website. We do have an Instagram and, and most of our, I would say, marketing is done through Instagram and, um, and through podcasts and interviews such as this. <laughs> Sweet. Well, uh, we will definitely put a link to your Instagram also in, into the show notes so that people can uh, can definitely check it out. And it's you know it's a great cause and uh, and and it's just amazing that you've been able to to do that. I mean, how I I feel like you know you've got a bunch of work that's been coming out during the pandemic. Obviously, you made it before the pandemic, but like, what course do you see us going through to get out of this? Are you are you working on set right now? Yeah, I actually just wrapped a pilot for John Wells for his new Netflix limited series called Made. It's based on the book Made. 
And it's about a woman who leaves an abusive relationship and takes her daughter in the middle of the night to give her a better life. And it's really about how she struggles with that decision and how she does everything in her power to provide you know, the best for her daughter. And it's really an uplifting story. Of course, there's a lot of domestic violence and abuse and, and really intense subject matter. But at the same time, there's a lot of levity and there's comedy and there's there's love and there's beauty in it. And it's, it's a really powerful story. And I'm just so, so happy to have worked on it with such a collaborator as John Wells, who is a master storyteller, but also just to be working in these in these times and to have producers who are very concerned about the welfare of, of our health. And that was really fulfilling in so many ways, you know, not having work for six months like so many of us. So I'm, I was just really grateful. So talk about like achieving your vision through kind of the fog of COVID-19 safety protocols. Like it, it sounds, I haven't worked on a set since people started shooting again, but it, it sounds like a lot to deal with in terms of like ordinarily be like, hey, you pick that up and put that over there. And now it's like, no, I, you know, the, all the protocols mean people can't like go in certain places and, and everything's different. How, how has that impacted your working? Well, my job with John was up in Victoria, B.C., where there are very few cases of COVID. Mm. However, we were still really strict. We had to get tested three times a week, masks on at every minute of the day. And even at lunchtime, we would just like, you know, sit 10 feet apart from one another outside and just like shovel our food in. (laughs) But it it did change the protocol a little bit. And, And at times it was actually a little better because... You know, you want to do those private rehearsals and you don't want people like lingering on the sidelines. So we had that privacy. Oh, interesting. Due to, yeah, due to the fact that like if you're shooting in a tight space, you can't have more than three people in there. So you'd have the actors, the director, the AD, DP, and the props. So it, it really kind of went back to the old school way of, of doing things. You block, then you light, and then you shoot. And it, I know that sounds like standard, but these days it's it's just like everyone's like running around trying to hustle yeah. and hustle. But you Sta- really standard have to sounds that very process. comforting. Yeah. Like it to, does. Yeah. It's like oh yeah, remember those times. <laughs> so it was really nice to have that structure. The only thing that was kind of hard was for my my camera team and my lighting team because they wouldn't have more than um, one viewing of the blocking rehearsal. And so basically after first team did the private, we would bring in stand-ins, they would watch, and then the rehearsal for the keys would be with the Mm stand-ins. So it's always a little bit different, but, you know, you get the general idea. I mean, do you think that there's anything from the kind of forced efficiency that's happening as a result of this that is going to carry over into work once we don't have to worry about this stuff? I certainly hope so. I, I think... It's really nice to have protocols in place and safety standards. I was thankful to have producers who were really mindful of COVID. And at the beginning of each day, we'd have safety meetings. And even at the safety meetings, if people were kind of crowding around outside, the producers would be like, hey, make sure look around. Is that six feet? Is that six feet? So it's, it's nice to have that structure. And it's very easy to become complacent. I will say mm. you get really comfortable and you're, you're you're like chatting with your assistants and and your crew and you have to remember oh wait, wait hold on we have to separate we have to break this bubble we're making so that the air can ventilate I mean I mean it's a lot to think about and and of course the science is still being you know discovered as we are working so it's best to take um, all these precautions have the protocols impacted the way prep goes does it take does it just does everything just take longer or is it about the same well everything definitely costs more (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah so basically we have to self-drive everywhere for the location scouts which it's actually kind of fun you know you get to like i don't drive that much so when i do (laughs) well like not for the last six months um, so I, you know, catch up on podcasts and <laughs> listen to the radio. It's kind of nice. So we have to self-drive everywhere. That's different. I know it's it's not like fuel efficient. So there, yeah, there are differences. And then when you go into the building, there's a limited number of people. And of course, you're wearing masks. And then we have our tech scout next week. And for that, we're going to basically have like a mini tech scout. So I'm going to take my keys to all the locations 
but just my keys and and their best and the rigging the rigging team. So it's just going to be seven of us and we won't have anyone else with us. So that will be like, I mean, besides location manager. So that's going to be very different because then we will have that on Monday. And then on Tuesday, we'll do like a virtual tech scout with every other department just to cover all the bases. So yes, things are very different. Are you having most of your crew prep from home as much as possible? Is, is that even something you can do? Yes. So I've had lots of meetings, lots of Zooms, like and when I was in Canada for that pilot, I had to quarantine for 14 days in a hotel room, and I could not cross the threshold. <laughs> it was super intense, man. Like, <laughs> could not leave the room. Really? It sounds like solitary confinement. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, with a full kitchen and a laundry and food <laughs> and a patio to the outside world. But there's something about it when you're f- told you cannot leave this. There's something psychological that happens. And around day 10, you start to go crazy. Mm. But, you know, I worked out a lot <laughs> in the room, <laughs> which was nice. Um, and then John and I had a lot of FaceTime, which was great. Oh, cool. I think I had more prep time with, yeah, I think I had more face-to-face, you know, via Zoom, of course, with John than I would have with any other director because of quarantine. I mean, I think it's going to be an interesting year because there's so much less production that's happened over the last, you know, whatever, eight months. And uh, and and so, like, you know, we're just not going to have the same amount of new movies and TV shows. And so, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's great to hear that you're doing it and great to hear that it's also being handled safely because, you know, to me, that was that that's always the, the biggest concern. Absolutely. Safety first. Although I will say that with in speaking with my colleagues, not every show is being treated like that. So you'll hear of a lot of shutdowns, and um, I think it's really up to the people at the top, you know, leadership from the top. Yeah. It has to be. And uh, a friend of mine actually is a special effects makeup artist, and he was telling me, like, he's he's in one of those situations, like what you're describing, where he has to be tested three times a day. And one of the producers was using the rapid tests, which aren't as reliable, and he Mm -hmm. got a false positive, which screwed him up because it would have meant that he couldn't work anymore. So he went to three separate labs and got three separate tests that day, and they all came back negative. But mm-hmm. uh, but it was a big scare, you know. So uh, we didn't necessarily want to talk too much about COVID. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I feel like the podcast we end up we end up doing like a COVID yeah, sure. a COVID therapy session every week, Ilya and I. <laughs> but um, let's kind of go back a little bit and and talk about Palm Springs, which I I think that there's a lot of interesting things to talk about uh, with regards to that movie. Specifically, I think creating a movie where we're repeating the same things uh, over and over again, and how you go about cinematically tackling that so that we see that it's the same thing, but we see that it's different all the time. Can you just talk about sort of your creative process and breaking that movie down and figuring out how to how to tell that story visually as you did? Yeah, I mean, just in general, the way I process a script, I, the first time I read it, I just really read it without stopping. I try to like put aside an hour and a half and just read it straight through without like putting it down, making any notes. It's just a straight read. Mm-hmm. The second time I read it, I start to try to like visualize things. And it's hard to not do that the first time, of course, because that's what we do as DPs. But then I really start to think about the characters and their story arc. And then upon the third reading, I I try to develop that visual arc. And then by then, I'm really getting a sense of not just the, the story, but like the character arc, the visual arc. And then some logistical things. Okay, this is going to probably want a technocrane. This is going to want a drone. This is the logistics of it. And then <laughs> for Palm Springs, I think I joked about it. I said, you know, this is really a $40 million movie. Like, I don't know how the F we're going to do this for like <laughs> like a 20th of that budget. <laughs> and then for what? 21, 22 days? What? Like, that's just insanity. But... Because the script was so compelling. It was so funny. It's so heartwarming. I just was like, you know what? I'm up to the task. I'm going to call in all my favors. My crew's going to hate me. Like, they're like, <laughs> another cue. Really? Really? Like, <laughs> why did you have to turn on that studio project and do this little indie? I was like, because it's, it's the labor of love, you guys. Come on. It'll be fun. And it really, it really was. It was so incredible and i i'm so grateful to have the crew that i had and to have had the script that andy sierra and max barbaco you know like what great wonderful people i'm just so happy that we had such a great time 
shooting it mm. and that it it kind of shows yeah it does have a sense of i mean you never know when you're watching a movie that has the sense of it felt like it was fun to make it you don't know if it really was or if mm-hmm. everyone's just really good at doing that but and and uh i feel like we never on this podcast say like oh you worked with x actor what was that person like but i feel like uh with Andy Samberg, he's kind of a, a pioneer of digital filmmaking himself with Lonely Island and the stuff that they used to do for Saturday Night Live. So I'm imagining that he is used to kind of making stuff. He's used to doing whatever he can do and whatever he can add to make the thing look and feel bigger than it is. And uh, also, you know, for a lead actor to probably to know probably a lot of what you were going through is probably a little unusual. Very unusual, but also very helpful. Mm hmm. And with Andy being such professional, um, what a, you know, incredible improviser, what a funny dude, what, you know, he really gets story mm-hmm. and he, he knows when he has a performance or not. I, I just, I really love him. I and also hate him for making me do cross coverage on every single thing. Cause he would oh. improvise and he'd be like, Q, we have to do cross. I'm like, but Andy, it's a night exterior. I've got like <laughs> a BB light, like. A mile away because we're in the freaking desert and it's 20 degrees. You want me to cross cover this, please? But, you know, he was right. Like because of the style of the shoot and because we had so many alternates, like so many takes, so many variations, uh, so much was found in just their improv because Kristen and Andy are just freaking brilliant actors and incredible improvisers. And so we didn't we never wanted to miss a beat. And so much of what ended up in the film is the unscripted. Oh, really? Is the improvised. Yeah. It, it doesn't like, have that feeling. I mean, sometimes movies uh, that are heavily improvised have kind of a shaggy, made-up-on-the-spot feeling, and uh, this definitely didn't have that. It felt, I mean, you know, they must have really worked it hard in editing or whatever, but it felt it felt tightly scripted when I saw it. Yeah, and it was tightly scripted. It was all there on the page on the day, mm-hmm. but we, we still had to do, like, 12 takes that were just completely like alternates for for them you know you have like Akiva and and Andy on set and (laughs) they're like okay let's try it this way let's try it that way and and that's the way they flow you know that's I love it because it's um it's refreshing but of course we would always do what was scripted too because it was such a brilliantly penned script yeah I was thinking of the stuff in the bar in particular that you know did they improvise a lot of that their dance routine and the, and the oh, whole yeah. thing that they yeah so the dance was choreographed but a lot of that was improvised so like basically they were practicing and i was like oh my god i was like inside the bar and i was looking out and they were practicing i was like go shoot that go come on get the camera get it's so, like i basically like was like let's shoot them rehearsing wouldn't that be funny and so in that regard i'd say there was a lot of improv um i think as a a documentary filmmaker as a photojournalist I'm always looking for moments like that we call that found beauty and so I always had the camera rolling and and with Max's blessing he's like just go roll just go roll whatever you know and Andy and I would be like hey what if we do this and there's a lot of outtakes (laughs) that were not obviously used but um a lot of that was born out of just like Kristen and Andy like shooting this shit on the side and be like oh god let's shoot this like the tattoo scene we did that in one take and and you know where they're drawing penises on each other (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we were running out light and they're like oh wouldn't this be funny if we did this and like okay go 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 draw that tattoo and we just shot it and I was like oh go we're running out light but it's just so funny and just adds to the vignette it adds to that montage um were there any other you know when you talked about cross shooting for instance were there any other challenges that come up with doing the, the level of improv that was going on in this? I feel like you you tend to or you have worked with kind of improv kind of stuff or stuff that looked improv like camping. But um, what are the other kind of structural things you, you kind of set up as a cinematographer so that you get what you want, but you also give the actors kind of freedom to, to play? I think in general, I, I definitely would call myself an actor's DP. Mm-hmm. I like to light from outside. I don't like to have a lot of lamps on the floor. I like to use very um, naturally motivated lighting. I don't like to tell actors where to hit exactly, you know. So I'll watch them block it organically and then go from there. And, and then, you know, that might mean I take a little more time in lighting the room. But then after that, I don't need to necessarily tweak as I move into coverage, as I move into close-ups. Mm. Because I, I use like a big source, like an 18K outside, 
and that kind of like the way it bounces and and fills in the room is less like lit to me as having 1k here 1k there 1k here 1k there, or like lights on the grid up in the ceiling uh, to me i i try to really i go with a more motivated lighting and i imagine that doing that also helps you bring something like this in did you say it was 21 days uh, for the shoot oh my god so fast yeah and also a lot of those days weren't even full days because we would include travel time oh yeah so i was like wait what we really only have like nine hours to shoot of shooting time and then like one hour travel on each end and no it's tight indie filmmaking man at its best it's funny because it doesn't feel super indie and i and i i mean that in a good way even as a as a lover of independent cinema like the movie felt really tight and it felt like the kind of movie that had all the toys because it looked like that polished to me oh thank you we did we did have a lot of toys because i called in all my favors (laughs) (laughs) i owe i owe them like my firstborn (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i basically um you know my my key grip pat mcginnis is incredible um stefan dahlia my gaffer incredible and then my longtime camera team who's worked with me for you know over a decade they all came on and you know we're like family and um, I would take them out every night to dinner. <laughs> I joke about losing money on the film, not getting any back end points or anything. Are you listening? To, are you listening to this, Andy Samberg? Um, <laughs> give me some points. <laughs> um, but you know, it's you do it for the love. And I just come off some, you know, network—not network, but like studio projects—and I just wanted to kind of restore my soul mm. and do something that was really just a labor of love. And, and this certainly was that. It was labor of pain, <laughs> a lot of pain, and like, oh my gosh, I had to cross cover every single scene with J.K. Simmons, for example, because he we only had him for like four days. He's so great in it, though. He's so phenomenal. I and also like the nicest man. And Andy Samberg joked like, um, I was like, wow, that was such a good scene, and he'd say to me, "Q, let's be honest, J.K. Simmons is the greatest actor, and I suck." But, you know, he, he even makes me look good. And, yeah, and he's so, like, so, so self-deprecating and, and incredible. But, um, but he's like, let's be honest. <laughs> um, we, are, we got him for a reason to elevate this movie. And, and that's also a joke with what you said about indie filmmaking and indie film. Like, it didn't look like any film. Andy Sam would make a joke like, Q, don't make this look like one of your indie films. I'll, I'll be like, screw you, dude. Screw you. You know, like... <laughs> Well, you know, and you keep talking about how, how these people are doing favors, and I understand it's it's mm-hmm. a profession and people need to make money, but I also feel like most people got into this because they were excited about movies, and a movie that really is meaningful or something that is a lot of fun and totally out of the ordinary, like uh, Palm Springs, in my experience anyway, it doesn't. it's not hard to get people who, are, who usually work at a higher pay rate mm-hmm. to go do something that sounds more interesting to them than what they're doing all the time. Yeah, but I think, you know, a lot of these people have families Mm. and they have kids. So it's, you know, you have those obligations, those fiscal obligations. And it's hard to ask people to work for way below what they're worth and what they're used to getting. And I I just feel bad because, you know, I I know what it's like. I know what it's like to struggle. You know, I I worked my way up and um, I hate asking people to like, hey, can you work for like, one sixth of your rate and also can you bring in a free technocrane and like (laughs) can you fly this drone for free and can we get that russian arm and you know i i don't want to compromise but at the same time i'm like you know i i am very grateful to everyone and i i try to repay that and and pay it forward again and i think that you you do just by making a film that that people really respond to and like i said at the beginning like i feel like you know again we we aren't it came out during the pandemic so we aren't congregating around a water cooler but we we do have facebook and when that thing dropped everybody on my feed was non-stop talking about palm springs um <laughs> it was it was sort of the the topic of conversation and, and i'm curious did your phone start ringing more when that kind of became the the thing everyone was talking about when it came out yeah, I got to say, I got a lot of Zoom meetings out of that. Nice. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm so grateful. I'm so happy that the movie, you know, achieved the level of, you know, not just from audience, but from critics. Yeah. It's it's getting really good response. I mean, it's we just got five nominations from the Critics' Choice Awards, which is great. And Golden Globes are coming up. And, you know, it's so nice to be a part of something that is meaningful and to know that 
you work so hard and that your crew works so hard towards something to have it be seen and, and appreciated. So the other thing you worked on that's gotten a lot of um, accolades was um, Unbelievable, which is really was, I watched it, it was a great series, um, and it got a Peabody Award. And that's kind of interesting to me, too, that, I mean, after working on Unbelievable, probably going to work on something like Palm Springs and, and your the doc you shot in Kenya was probably a little bit nice to do something sort of more comedic and not as heavy. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I will say that Unbelievable was super intense. It was very, it, like, I, and I have a daughter and I have a son. And so, you know, every night I would go home and be like, oh my gosh, if this happened to my kids, like, what would I do? And so it really gives you so much perspective and in a way that's like that mama bear comes out and you just want to protect your kids and you want to shelter them from these horrible things and protect them as much as you can. But you know that a lot of the stuff is out of your control. It's the same thing with what's happening now. I don't want to bring up the pandemic again, but, um, you know, you want to protect your family. You want to protect your kids and your loved ones. And you, f- you feel helpless at times. But I really, that experience was um, really incredible for so many reasons. I, I loved working with Susanna Grant and Lisa Cholodenko and Beverly Timber. You know, like they're all such incredible mothers as well. But to have that perspective and to have the support that they gave us in telling this story, because it's so, you know, it's so subjective. That camera work is so subjective. It was so literal. I literally put the camera where Marie's head would be to try to portray that 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 point of view and to not make anything uh, uh, seen from the perpetrator's point of view. And we never shot over the shoulders. We didn't shoot anything conventional during those scenes, those those horrible assault scenes. So, I was going to ask you a little bit about that. Um, so when you and Lisa Chilodenko uh, discussed it, you had that in mind of how you know how you were planning on shooting it. Oh yeah, we we actually mm-hmm. brought Caitlin in early during pre production, and Lisa laid down on the couch, uh, and I pretty much showed Caitlin, you know, we're gonna put the camera here and you're going to be completely exposed. How how does this feel? Are you going to feel comfortable if we put the camera here? You know, we'll, we'll, it'll be a closed set, but this is how it ha- happened in, in real life. And we want to be as accurate because it's based on true events. We wanted to be as honest as possible and stay true to the material. And so um, that was a you know, I, I don't know if I've ever done that before, brought in an actor during pre-pro and talk about the actual shots. But we wanted to be so careful, so mindful and respectful to not only Caitlin Deaver as an actor, but to the story and to the victim's perspective. So do you think that having a women director then and having more of a women-oriented crew really kind of helped tell the story better? I, I definitely think because the victim, the victim of sexual assault was a woman that it was good to have, dare I say, the female gaze mm-hmm. in, in this instance. But truly, like, the sensitivity that we as women who identify as she, her, you know, I think we kind of, we definitely have a perspective to what it feels like to to be assaulted. Because I know, I mean, I know I've, like, been grabbed. I know I've been touched in a place that was, like, uncomfortable for me. And that's just like scratching the surface of what happened to this young woman. But to be able to identify in, in the smallest manner, you know, when you're walking by a, in the streets and someone cat calls you and it's, you know, it's not a great feeling. No. And so I think having that experience really helped us tell this story in the way that we did. And then um, when she's in the interrogation room at the police station, you made that an interesting place because it's an, an interrogation room to make it, you know, more because it was an actual it was not a set, but an actual location. So, you know, if you can talk a little bit about like how you shot that to make it seem more interesting than just white walls. I think for me, the motivation for camera placement is always stemming from the story. And so in our pre-production talks about the script, Lisa and I talked about this constant assault, this constant brutality towards this young woman named Marie. And so just as in the rape scenes, 
the perpetrator is assaulting her. We wanted her to be attacked yet again by the police. And so having this large format glass, this intense field of view where the camera placement to subject is so immediate. You know, you you see so much more. And we wanted we wanted to relay that with the lens. And so I shot the assault scenes on a 35, which I thought reflected as close as possible to the human field of view. And then in the police interrogation scenes, I used an even wider lens to make it feel as if the the police were attacking her. And then there's this moment where um, the police officer goes three times, three times. And then he, we intentionally, like Lisa and I had him raise his hand right in front of the lens. So it's like, like three times and you'll see his hand and it looks gigantic and it's like right in front of the lens and just feels like, oh my God, she's being like scolded. She's being attacked for no reason. And that was so integral to making that interrogation scene feel the way it felt. And I'm hoping, you know, it's, it's all very subjective, but we wanted it to not feel conventional. We wanted it to feel like as an audience member, you were being interrogated, that you were put in her shoes. And and just as like Roger Deakins and the Coen brothers do, they put the, like if two people are sitting at a table, you don't have that over the shoulder traditional shot. The camera is in between. It's right above the table. So you're in that space Physically, the camera placement to the subject is very intentional and very specific. And and I think that really helps give you that at the subconscious level, the feeling that you are present in that scene. Also, to me, the way it was shot, too, it made you feel she seems very small, you know, and just, yeah, like in that seat, just and so alone. Yeah. So, There's yeah. another idea of um, disembodiment that Lisa and I talked about a lot. And in that, so victims of trauma deal with it very differently. Everyone has their own coping mechanisms. The first time that we cut to Marie's face during the assault is when she then sees this picture of her on the beach. And that is actually a still frame taken from the footage that I shot at the camera test, which we, we initially were like, oh, maybe it becomes animated within the frame. But then like in post, they decided to cut to the actual scene. So there's this idea of, of like transporting oneself out of your body to deal with this attack, which is why her foster mothers were like, wait, that's not how I would react. You know, she seems so happy. Like, how could she? Why isn't she crying? You know, like that's what led to their doubt. Right. That seed of doubt is what led to this whole fiasco. Anyway, there was this idea of disembodiment. And so there are all these shots that we did that did not make it into the film necessarily, but like pieces of people who are like just like their arms or their hands or their chests. Like, for example, when she's taken to the hospital after that, she is attacked once again. So we use, you know, that very intense camera angle when she's being swabbed, when she's being, you know, having her examinations. And there's this part where the nurse comes in and she's like showing Marie the the pills that she's about she needs to take and Marie is kind of zoning out and she's just looking at the hands it's this idea of disembodiment so I'm just I'm tilted down on her hands on the nurse's hands and she's talking she's describing Marie's like zoning out so like there's all there's this idea that like we don't see the whole person that we just see pieces of them because your mind just kind of goes into a different place your other project, very serious material as well, with a teacher. Um, I I watched some of that as well. Was it a similar thing where it's a little bit different though, where you have a it's woman kind of yeah as the predator, I guess mm -hmm. you know. So um, did you want to talk about that a little? Sure. I mean, it's okay. it's <laughs> so much heavy, heavy stuff. Sorry. I know what's wrong with me. <laughs> I need to do another <laughs> no, Palm Springs. Okay. I don't know. I, I, I swear I, I love you've comedy. Done, you've done so a with, lot of with comedy Palm Springs, too, your phone started I ringing, mean, but you, but you, you know. only took like the most difficult material you could get your hands on. <laughs> no, no. The, the project I'm shooting now is a very fun pilot. It's, it's very fun, I promise you. It's like a half-hour comedy-ish mm -hmm. <laughs> about the first Playgirl magazine. Oh, okay. So it's, cool. it's very fun. It's very fun. I'm even like doing some zooms 
<laughs> you know, that's a fun time when you have Zoom. It's Zoom fun. Uh, well, yeah. it sounds, sounds period, uh, you know, like there are a lot of... Yeah, it's 70s. Yeah. yeah. But they're very spe- specific Zooms. Um, yeah, but, but but anyway, going back to a teacher, it's very, very serious, but um, totally, you know, totally shot in a different way. It's not, I wouldn't say it's like naturalistic the way that I shot Unbelievable, a little heightened here and there. But um, my teacher, you know, there's some dream sequences. There's like some in in camera tricks and stuff like that. But that show is again, it's it's very intense material about predator grooming a young boy and and male victimhood and and you know the actors are incredible. Kate and and Nick, Kate Mara and Nick Robinson are just like wow, what a joy, what a pleasure to work with actors who are so capable. And so full of nuance. Yeah, it's it's kind of like two sides of the same coin almost too. With um, you know, showing it from a, a you know male perspective also. So it's kind of so. yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think you know, at the end of the day, you want to stay true to the material. You want to empathize with our victim. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, what direction do you see uh, your stuff going in these days? You know, uh, again, like I said at the beginning, I I sort of feel like you're we kind of talked to you right at the beginning of a massive upswing in your career and you're doing higher profile stuff and more prestigious stuff. Where do you see yourself going? Uh, The real question is, when are you doing an X-Men movie or something? I don't know. I'm I'm joking. (laughs) I just I just feel like everybody everybody eventually ends up making a superhero movie. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'd love to do like action packed special effects superhero movie at some point i'd love to do that but maybe along the lines of logan mm, that's a great and I movie i love yeah so good right it's that like great. so good so powerful such a great story like i cried i remember watching um, that and being like this is a comic book movie a western and a science fiction movie and yet it doesn't feel like any of those things it just seamlessly blends all the genres but yeah. also like this plot was so good and the mm. storytelling and you know, it's about fatherhood. It's so good. I don't know. Maybe I was like a new parent when it came out and I just like was crying, you know, like completely sleep deprived. And <laughs> on, on that on that topic, by the way, like you gave me when we first talked, my wife was pregnant. I don't remember exactly how far along she was. And I was terrified. And, and yeah. you, you gave me some assurance that that, uh, that you can have a family and do this stuff that it you know, that they don't have to there. It's not one or the other. It was it, yeah. was, it was very comforting when you when you told me that, you know, because how's that working out? Well, he's two and a half years old now and <laughs> we're in a pandemic. So I um, but but actually, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, it is working out. But yeah. So but like what direction do you are you going to are you pursuing more television? Are you pursuing more feature kind of work? You know, it, it, that's a great question, because um, I did turn down a movie to do this John Wells project because mm. I just love the script so much. And um, I'm actually up for another really intense drama. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, limit, limited series, um, which is just a, it's based on real life events. I mean, I guess that's like, dang, is that my jam now? It's always been, I mean, I guess with my with my past um, yeah. of being a photojournalism and, and, and doing so much documentary work, it's just makes sense that I would be drawn to these stories. But yeah, I, I but do you, love it. You really bridge both. I mean, you certainly did plenty of comedy too with Little Hours and mm-hmm. um, Camping and, you know. Palm so. Springs. And Palm Springs, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, for sure. I I don't know. I, I, I'm You know what? I am just grateful to be working and <laughs> just thankful that my projects are being seen and that people are responding to the material and that, you know, really, I, I do try to choose projects that I think could have an impact. I just think it's important to do stuff that you're passionate about. And I'm very passionate about, you know, sourdough and family and <laughs> cooking and baking and, and um, emotional drama. And, and so, you know, like, you know, giving voice to victims no, on a serious, on a more serious note, I do, I guess, want to give voice to, to people who are, um, who may not have that voice. Cool. Well, I think that that's an amazing place to leave it. Uh, is there, I'm sure that you told me this last time, but is there a website or social media or someplace where people can see your work or, or interact with you? Well, I have my Instagram handle at Doe Rectors of Photography. Do it. 
Who doesn't love a good pun? And then from my website, I think, oh my gosh, I don't even know. Is it like Qtran Film or something? I don't even know what my website is. <laughs> is that terrible? <laughs> is that the worst? I don't even know what, how, what, like, what? when was the last time it was updated? And, and I just want to add, yes, please donate to Fair Fight Action and contact Q. And, it's, and I said her name wrong. It's Jeanne. 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 Okay. Jeanne. We have the, we have the hardest name. Jeanne and Quien. Okay. Okay. Good luck. That's why just we just call us the directors of photography. Just call me Q. <laughs> so yeah, so you can donate to Fair Fight Action and um, find directors of photography. Send them an Instagram message, and in return for your receipt, they will give you a loaf of bread or some cookies. Yeah, who doesn't love that? I think it's awesome. Why not get baked goods in return for your contribution? Unless you're you're gluten free. But we're gonna develop a gluten-free <laughs> starter. So my my wife is gluten-free. So let me know when uh, when that happens. Yeah, sounds great. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you guys. Thank you again, and and congratulations on all your success. Thanks, Q, for thank, coming on again. Thanks so much, you guys. Stay safe. Okay. Yeah, you, you too. too. So that was Q and Tran. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. It was great to have you back, and I uh, can't wait to see what you are doing next. Uh, typically, when it's Ben and I doing this, uh, this is where a commercial might go, and uh, I'm gonna gonna do a little commercial right now. I'm gonna pay the bills, even though uh, Ben's not here to to bounce it off of. Uh, our lovely sponsor, Aperture, who makes really really fine lighting products, introduced two new lights this week. One's called the LS60D and the other is the LS60X. Uh, but what's really cool about these lights is that they are small, compact, and have a lens, which gives it a incredibly focused, hard beam of light. Really, really like a spotlight, the most sort of like out of the box, like a spotlight light they've ever made. It's got an adjustable flood that you can flood that spot between 15 degrees and 45 degrees, and it's a ridiculously affordable price. Of course, you can get these over at Hot Rod Cameras. Of course, they're adaptable to all their, their typical modifiers, and uh, super, super bright, considering they only take up 60 watts. So you definitely want to check out the uh, 60D and 60X, and the difference being uh, one is daylight only, and the other is uh, color tunable between daylight and tungsten temperatures. Uh, actually, a little bit more on, on either end. It gets a little warmer, it gets a little colder, and it's $369 or something like that. These are really inexpensive lights, really high quality, really low power, and, and work fantastic. So hit up Hot Red Cameras and uh, get on the list for the 60D and the 60X. They are going to be backordered. Uh, a lot of people have been waiting for these for quite a while. And I know that the ones that were there today uh, were flying out the door. And now, short ends. Moving on to the final segment of the show, our short ends. And uh, since Ben is not here, and I've already kind of gone down the path of NDAs and Kanye West and, and all that stuff, I'm going to go with something slightly different. And I'm going to encourage uh, folks to go ahead and uh, research this. If you uh, are on Twitter, and I know many of you are, uh, you're going to want to take a look at the number of celebrities that are trolling Ted Cruz. <laughs> Ted Cruz, political figurehead and a really outspoken Trump supporter and Republican who has actively, you know, been involved in stoking the insurgents on the uh, nation's capital, uh, has been trolled by Seth Rogen and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And uh, it's continuing to be sort of a thing. And there's, it's not unusual that celebrities and politicians might troll each other. This one's been going on in a very heated exchange where Seth Rogen in particular really uses a lot of foul language, which is not out of character for him and really not necessarily undeserved on Ted Cruz's part. But it's very interesting to see how this has progressed in such a short period of time. And I think that my little prediction here, putting on my, my uh, seeing into the future hat, I think you're going to see a lot more of this. I think as the worlds of media and politics tend to intertwine and you get more and more people like Donald Trump, former reality TV stars now getting involved in, in politics, I think you're going to see the social media interactions of uh, the warring factions in this country get more outspoken and maybe it'll lead to greater understanding. But that certainly doesn't happen with the trolling of uh, Ted Cruz and Seth Rogen uh, pretty much 
takes him apart and he gets help from from other people like uh, Michael Herbert Schur, who is a co-creator of Parks and Rec. He had a particularly biting and accurate tweet here that uh, was wonderful. I'm just going to read this as the one example from this exchange, which is that uh, Ted Cruz is desperate to pick a fight with Seth Rogen. So everyone talks about that and not the fact that he made a bad faith attempt to overthrow a fair election in order to cynically grab Trump's base and run for president in 2024. Let's focus on the latter. And I think that's really interesting. I think it's really interesting that people out there are using Twitter as commentary on the political theater. And of of course, this is nothing new, but the fact that Hollywood is getting involved and the fact that more political leaders are taking to Twitter to get their message out. It would not surprise me if we're going to start having candidates that are completely launched via social media and particularly Twitter, and that that is the way that they're going to communicate with their fans and constituents and and everything else, similar to Donald Trump before he was deplatformed. But because it is so inexpensive and if you are good at gaming the system, basically finding ways around the algorithm to reach the people that you want to talk to, this may just become the standard. It won't be, you know, uh, going door to door anymore. It's going to be, you know, a Twitter campaign or something to that effect. So I, I can wait to see what's going to happen with this, but I will say that the trolling and the vitriol exists out there in such a way that really this is going to continue to make headlines and the business of going forward, running the country may take a backseat. I guess really the whole point about Twitter is that uh, it's difficult to get any real depth. And you might argue that with Donald Trump, we did not ever get any depth from him in his 280 character tweets, but that really going forward, I'm going to say that as Twitter's influence, as Twitter's uh, ability for politicians to speak directly to their base and to the world in such short little bites, um, we're not going to really get anything extra or better. We're just going to get more of it. And if Donald Trump was the prototype for the uh, the future, I think that you <laughs> just get ready because we're going to get a whole lot more of it. And maybe it won't be Trump style, but I think that uh, all politicians are, have paid attention to what Donald Trump has done over the last four years. And I think you will see more discord, more interaction and more trolling, just like your aunt who maybe made a bad comment on Twitter might have made and your uncle decided to troll her. It's going to happen uh, on the on the big stage with uh, politicians and with celebrities and Hollywood and everything else. So that just about does it for uh, this episode of the Cinepod. Uh, hopefully Ben Rock will be back next week. I, I'm not sure, but I will. I'll keep you guys posted and uh we gotta thank some people let's thank uh alana cody our fantastic producer let's thank uh, ben katz our intrepid editor and we'll thank Kay's alatrachi who composed all the music you heard in this episode and he probably isn't listening to the episode um i guess that's gonna wrap everything up oh you can find me over at hot rod cameras hotrodcameras.com. you can also find me on linkedin and all the other sort of social places but really hot rod cameras and uh LinkedIn, probably the the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, That's it. Until next week, sayonara. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.